While awaiting release, hounds were tied to each other by the neck in couples. Ten hounds are still referred to as five couple. Eleven hounds as five and a half couple. The couple itself might be spun by the huntsman. They should be made of the hair of a horse's tail or of a mare's tail, for they be best and last better than if they were of hemp or of wool, or might be made simply from purchased cord. In the French royal kennels, ordinary cow's leather was used, a payment to Robin Le Coutre for cowhide bought to make six leashes for the king's limers, an archaic word for a leash hound, is typical. For a hound whose role was cosmetic rather than practical, the leash and the collar were sometimes extremely splendid. A leash of white silk with collar of white velvet embroidered with pearls, the swivel of silver. Dog collars of crimson velvet with leashes of white leather. The fabric white and green with letters and silver turrets, silk, checkered vert et noir, green and black, letters and bells of silver gilt. The Art of Medieval Hunting, The Hound and the Hawk, by John Cummins. This is Our Numinous Nature, and I'm your host, Philippe. We'll be hearing the profound stories of people with a deep connection to the natural world, from herbalists to hunters, wildlife rehabilitators to trappers, artists to homesteaders. The list goes on. My hope is to thread a needle that weaves together the many nature-related passions through stories of reverence. In nature, I've found meaning, a richness for life that grows with each new day. Maybe you feel the same. Or maybe you long to. Dum dum da dum da dum bum. Dum dum da dum da dum dum. What incredibly glorious and epic Baroque music we have on today's episode, thanks to the performances of Ars Lyrica Houston. If you like that and want to hear more, click their link in the show note, and uh, I'll be playing a handful of their performances throughout this episode. Now, I feel that that music is so perfectly fitting to today's topic, which is going to be dog collars throughout history, sometimes at its most opulent 
and glorious. Our guest is Claudia Pfeiffer. She is the deputy director and head curator of the National Sporting Library and Museum in Middleburg, Virginia. They recently had a traveling exhibition titled Identity and Restraint, Art of the Dog Collar. And while I missed it, I wanted to get up there and hear from Claudia some of the more exciting things about it. Now, my main hope for this episode is that someone listening is a craftsperson and you work in leather and in metal and you revive the lost art of the dog collar because I personally think you will make a killing. Because even if you Google a $400 Tiffany & Co. dog collar, it looks super lame. I'm sure it's high quality, but it just looks pretty standard. So today, when we live in a period where our dog collars are made out of nylon or made out of plastic or, you know, leather at best, but kind of in a very kind of normal looking way, I think someone with an artistic temperament can revive this and make folk arty collars, make, you know, real high quality ones with, you know, really good metal and, uh, engravings, etc. And I think you'll make a fortune. Now, if you want to see what some of these historical collars looked like, you can just go to my Instagram, Our Numinous Nature. And a few weeks ago, I posted some uh, pictures from within the exhibition's catalog. And you can see about eight of those collars with various styles. Also throughout this episode, Claudia will be referencing different pieces of art And I went ahead and I put links in the show notes so you can uh, have an easily accessible image to follow along. Before I get into any reading, I want to say a big thank you to someone new on Patreon, the Militant Hippie. Thank you very much. And everyone at the highest tier, big thanks to Jess Padgett, Kendall Wine, Ash Barron, Rachel Hawkshot of Topsy Farms, Alexander Kurashev. Uh, on Stanley, Craig Coring, Diana Gonzalez, Earl Suter, Franklin Renshaw, Heron O'Brien, Jacob Griffin, Jamie Nudd, James Mann, Jeff McLaughlin, uh, Kenneth Giles, Leslie Peterson-Cohen, Michael Zorn, Michelle Alderson, Nathan Griffin, Ryan Arnold, uh, Rambler, Ryan Goechner, Sophie McVicker, uh, T. Pierce, um, and the Militant Hippie, Tristan Harper, Tyler Lively, Waddle and Dobb Historical Craftsman, uh, and last but not least, the Working Class Woodsman, and of course, everyone at the lower tiers. Thank you guys so much. Uh, It really means a lot, and I know um, there are lots of people out there who uh, ask for money for their creative projects, and I appreciate it coming my way. For today's reading, I thought it would be apropos to read from the exhibitions catalog. So this is uh, from Timothy Greenan, who is a dog collar collector. And he's exploring some of the history that we missed on the podcast. I am a dog collar collector. I have been one for 20 years. Collecting dog collars might seem a bit idiosyncratic or downright strange, but many collectors and collections can be. When people learned I collected dog collars, they would often respond with incredulity. You collect what? Dog collars? Why? 
And wow, uh, how did you get started with that? I have bought and traded for dog collars and have never sold any. I've traveled thousands of miles across the Atlantic for a dog collar. There was once a country silver dealer in the UK who was offering a spectacular sterling silver dog collar from the early 19th century, but the price was high. I wanted to inspect the collar, and we set a meeting at the Royal Automobile Club's cocktail lounge, Pall Mall, in London. I decided to bring along a late 19th century enameled sterling silver flask in an original leather case owned by a crew member for one of Jason J. Gould's America's Cup match racers. The silver dealer said he wanted cash, but I knew what he really wanted. He left with the flask, I left with the collar. We chatted a week later, we were both happy, and even trade. Collecting is hunting, and I am a hunter. I remember the ones that got away. First. In a February 2010 auction, there was a dog collar allegedly owned by Charles Dickens. The provenance made me hesitate. The collar itself was nothing special. I could not bring myself to pull the trigger. It went up for $11,590. Second was a beautiful collar attributed to a hound from the hunting pack of Catherine the Great. The collar was being offered by an obscure German militaria auction house with an estimate of 10 to 15,000 euros. I was very interested, but needed to verify the auction house. I called a friend, a highly educated antiquities dealer in London, who contacted numerous colleagues, and unfortunately, none had any experience with this house. We decided to look further at the collar itself. It had an inscription that was in Cyrillic. My friend pointed out that the court language was French during Catherine the Great's reign, we decided this was too much of a concern, and I elected not to bid. The hammer price was 12,000 euros, and its authenticity remains unknown. Dog collars have, in many ways, always been ephemeral objects with little enduring significance, often buried with the dog and sadly lost to history. Those that have survived tell a story. It is the pursuit of that story, of humans' relationship with the dog, that hooked me on collecting collars. For the curious, each collar is a window in time. When was this dog alive? What was this dog's job? Where did this dog live? Who was the owner? Where was the collar made? Who made the collar? Each collar provides a valuable history lesson. Dating back thousands of years, collars were either leather or metal, or some combination of the two. The earliest metal collars were bronze or iron, collars in the 16th to 19th century were commonly metal, brass being most prevalent. Although most metal collars were expensive, some were more affordable. Primitive iron collars, more common prior to the 19th century, were usually made by a blacksmith and considerably less costly. Simple leather collars were a side business to the harness and tack trade where leather scraps and buckles abounded. This was an opportunity to profitably utilize the leftover materials. Finer leather collars, such as those of Moroccan leather, primarily used to bind books, became a side business of the fancy and sporting leather goods trade. Some owners elected to personally design and make a collar for their pet. These were generally leather, often highly creative, frequently regionalistic, and some are true works of folk art. 
By the late 19th and early 20th centuries, pet stores and catalogs began to offer, quote, dog furnishings. With the pet stores and dog fancy of the late 19th century also came the mass production of metal and leather collars. In 1890, the wholesale catalog of Medford Fancy Goods Company of New York advertised themselves as, quote, the only exclusive manufacturers of dog collars and general dog furnishings. Their specialty was fashionable collars for pampered dogs. Their catalog featured leather collars in exotic skins such as lizard and alligator, and metal collars made of sterling silver, silver plate, gold, brass, and nickel plate. Collars could be purchased that were named after celebrities and popular theater shows. Modern collars are overwhelmingly mass-produced, made not just of leather and or metal, but from synthetic materials. They're available in a myriad of colors and styles and can come adorned with a selection of pet names or a favorite NFL team for which to choose. There is little interest in these tchotchkes for a collector like me. The restraint provided by a regal dog collar of the past is now being replaced by the restraint of the halter, whose identity is now churned out on a plastic name tag available in a matter of minutes from a vending machine. Although the convenience of this is undeniable, the art of the dog collar is lost. are in Middleburg, Virginia at the National Sporting Library and Museum, which is on the western part of town on the main street here. Uh, the campus has been uh, growing since 1954, although the museum was in a building in the middle of town before uh, the library opened here in 1968. The museum building that we're in now was originally the library Uh, in 1968, uh, well, 1969, when the uh, after it was converted, the library was founded in 1954, so it has a really long and deep history in the um, town of Middleburg. The museum was opened in 2011, so fairly new in the full um, uh, approach that we have now. Uh, but we're really excited that we've grown into an institution that people think of both the library and the museum at the same time. Our uh, mission is to preserve, promote, and share the literature, art, and culture of equestrian, angling, and field sports. And we also added a second tag to that mission um, this year. Um, we're committed to education and advocacy for the conservation of open space and waterways integral to these pursuits. You know, so a fancy way to say that we can't have these sports without preserving the landscape and, um, you know, supporting ideas of uh, conservation and fresh waterways for fishing. And so all of those things are very much tied to what we do here. Amazing. I think uh, many people listening to this podcast might be herbalists, might be hunters. I think normally uh, hunting in America, you think about preserving those places by, you know, national forests, state parks. But there's also a fascinating side, especially with the fox hunting, which we'll talk a little bit about, obviously, is that these large property owners, like, you know, if someone has like a 
I don't know, 5,000 acre farm. I mean, that is going to keep the land in it not becoming a goddamn strip mall. Right. <laughs> I mean, and absolutely. And I mean, really here, it's sort of a, an amazing community of people who are so invested generationally. You know, I mean, you go back to the founding of Virginia, really, and some of these properties um, in, you know, the ninth generation still keeping those traditions alive and keeping the, the landscape safe. Uh, in the sports that are done here, as you mentioned, fox hunting, I mean, Virginia is the seat of fox hunting. Today, the Piedmont Foxhounds is um, still active, right, literally right outside of town here. And they were the for- first organized hunt, even though it went back further than the 1800s, you know, back to the 1650s when the English came to the area. And we've got literally three hunts within, you know, 10, 15 miles from here. And that means a club. Yeah, right. so that, um, so fox hunt, yep. So these are organized clubs, um, member and subscription-based or um, guests who come to hunt, and they do follow foxes here re- regionally, the red fox. Uh, also an interesting idea because the red fox was not indigenous to right. this area, right? So they were, um, the gray fox was, and looking at um, how the red fox has now become sort of standard Farm. Issue of the landscape, yes, right? Yes, yes. I didn't, so I did, a, as you know, I did a whole episode with Rita Mae Brown, kind mm-hmm. of what is the fox hunt like? Because, yeah. you know, I listen to hunting podcasts all the time. I've never heard a peep about the fox hunt. Um, I think that has to do with, like, class and stuff like that. It's a little bit different of a type of hunting uh, culture. But, um, yeah, so Rita Mae kind of described what the whole hunt is like. But I forgot to say that, that, yeah, the red fox isn't even a real American animal. No, they, I mean, there's evidence that they might have migrated down from Canada about oh. the same time that the English came and brought them over. Okay. And they're direct competitors to the gray fox. So wherever they're gray fox, and usually the red fox is going to win out. And it's a really neat thing looking at the history of fox hunting in the United States and that idea because as the red fox are migrating and taking over, they are affecting um, the quality of the hunt, how, what type of hounds they might have to pursue the, the hound packs that were pursuing gray fox. They were slower. The horses were slower. So mm. as the red fox becomes moves down the coast, there are some epic stories in the late 19th century, like in the Georgia area where they would have, there's one famously where they had like a 10, a 10 hour fox hunt um, uh, behind the, they called the um, fox the old napper was his oh, name. Wow, wow. That's almost like the bear hunting in Appalachia where it can turn into days on end, for, yeah. especially back in the day before GPS units and all that. Um, well, yeah, so clearly this town, incredible town. I mean, it looks as though it's like late 1700s buildings. So it um, the Middleburg uh, is the new name for it. It was mm. I believe it was called Chin's Ordinary in the 1700s. We do have several historic properties here. I mean, the museum building itself was built in 1804. It was mm. a federal house that was a private house until um, it was converted to the library in the in the 1960 well 1968 as I mentioned. So yeah. And then the I mean the fox hunting is just such a part of the culture of this entire little region. I mean every shop has a fox taxidermy in it or a fox on the sign or a horse as a door knocker or a fox yeah. as a door knocker. Um, so it's pretty interesting. So yes, yeah, so this museum is quite interesting because it gets all into the fox hunt and other uh, you know very gentlemanly hunting with the dogs and stuff like that. But the real reason I wanted to come here today was to, to you recently had this exhibit about dog collars, mm-hmm. which is like, well, that seems pretty mundane, but I've only had a dog for two years. 
first in my life. It's a hunting dog, a squirrel hunting dog. So I didn't really know anything about dog history. I'd never paid attention to dogs and art, which I think art is such an interesting way to look at history. And uh, I'm only starting to kind of try to pay attention to that. And it kind of blew my mind to see that, oh my God, I thought dog collars were recent past few decades. Like I had no concept that people were restraining or having on leash, you know, the hunting dogs of medieval Europe were mm-hmm. all led on leashes. And so uh, that just kind of blew me away. So you did this whole recent exhibit about uh, collars in history. And I would just love to kind of just hear a little bit about that. I, I watched, you did a one hour, um, you're the curator here, mm-hmm. and you did like a one hour video where you were kind of going through the exhibit. Um, it's pretty amazing to start at the oldest stuff, like the ancient Greece. Mm-hmm. Was it Greece or Rome? I, I mean, it goes back to really the domestication of the dog when you get right down to it. I mean, we didn't obviously, you know, can't transfer any cave paintings over, but, you know, the, the earliest iterations of humans' interactions with dogs, they, you know, that you can have discussions about how dogs were domesticated, but ultimately from domestication, um, you know, some of the earliest artwork depicts um, dogs tethered to the wastes of hunters back to 8,000 BCE. Wow, and it goes, really? Yeah, it goes, I mean, the imagery goes very far back. I mean, we, we focused in our exhibition, which actually is not in Middleburg anymore, but is still on its traveling. It's at the American Kennel Club Museum of the Dog in New York City right now. It closes there on September 4th, and then it travels to Pebble Hill Plantation in Thomasville, Georgia, and opens there on November 4th and is there through the spring and March. So still opportunities to see it. It's just not in our building right now. And it was a great partnership with the American Kennel Club. Um, Alan Fossil, who's their adjunct curator there, was a great partner in working on the artwork component. The artwork is from the Kennel Club and from the Museum of the Dogs Collection. The dog collars that we explored, the physical artifacts, we have about 60 of them in the show. And they were an incredible part of an incredible donation that we received from um, Dr. Tim Grinnan and his wife, Jocelyn. They collected them for um, almost two decades privately and amassed over 180 of them in in their journey. And as you pointed out, really started to um, hone in on the idea of the centuries-long use of them and the evolution of our relationship with dogs relating to those physical artifacts and what they were used for in those different roles from, you know, starting with the earliest hunting experiences through to war um, and then looking at, you know, farming practices and um, carriage driving looking at uh, then sport activity and training mechanisms and then as cherished pets where they, you know, were, and this idea of the title of the show, Identity and Restraint Art of the Dog Collar, looks at the definition of identity and restraint, both from the human being side of it and from the canine side. And that can really, it begs that question, what we see in them as physical artifacts as a, a mode of identity, are they showing, you know, a, you know, one of the more elaborate ones or a reflection of status and culture, uh, you know, utilitarian purposes, uh, and then looking at these amazing depictions of dogs in artwork to give a full image of that connection. And so we did end up partnering with the Museum of the Dog. So we really focused on the collections that they have in particular. And so the artwork that is in the show starts in the um, 1600s. We have that historic section where we explore sort of the iconic imagery that we think of as earlier 
even so um, ideas of like Pompeii in particular was a this thriving metropolis that had, you know, a, an a, amazing culture that included dogs as um, pets, dogs as, um, you know, as a uh, protector and that being encapsulated in the eruption of Vesuvius. So there is an, a really intense series of artifacts that exist that you're probably familiar with when the archaeologist came to avoid that was um, basically where a body was incinerated whether human or animal, they would pour concrete into it and cast it. And so there's a casting of a dog that perished in Pompeii that was cast, and the leather collar that it had um, is not visible anymore, but the leather, it is visible, it just doesn't exist in the casting, but the brass fittings for it are still actually encapsulated in that particular object. So we had a picture of that in the show to talk about that a little bit. That's mind-blowing. Isn't it? So so what happened? So the so how did it create the voids? I guess the 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 it's human a, body just decayed out from the it actually, ash and in, soot? Or? It incinerated. So the Vesuvius oh. was a pyroclastic flow eruption, right? Okay. So it's like something like I'm not an expert, but it's like over 200 degrees temperature-wise when that that hits any, you know, it just incinerates everything gotcha. in its path. Okay, okay. And so you have sort of this, you know, the the um, the expo- explosive blowing of this ash that's like hyperheated and everything it comes into contact with, it just incinerates. And so the um, because of the intensity of the heat, like, so there are, um, there were so many bodies that were basically, you know, these, these voids that existed and some really, you know, there it's, so sad, you know. The haunting. It's haunting, yeah. So then they poured in plaster to the voids mm-hmm. in the earth as they're excavating it. Yep. And those were the in the forms of these people, people and, animals and animals that had yep. been that had been vaporized. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you're and you're saying the one because I remember you in your in the presentation yeah. you're doing, you could see the dog collar in the plaster. Yep. Incredible. Yeah. I mean it's um the other uh they also have um there were mosaics, so sort of not as gruesome as a gruesome idea, but um, there was a, a mosaic on Earth. There are a couple of them, actually, that are tile. And so one of them that was the entryway for the house of the tragic poet, it has this tethered guard dog that has a red collar and a chain, and it has the words cave conum on them, which means beware of the dog. So just these kind of universal truths, you see that sort of, you know, the connection that we have with dogs is very much something that human beings experience throughout history. Yeah, I love when something has is just timeless. Yeah. So yeah, the sign hanging from the tree, beware of dog. People have been saying that for thousands of years. Mm-hmm. <laughs> exactly. So a mosaic, that's usually broken um, glass or tile or, mm-hmm. or pottery, right? Yep. And then formed into... Yeah, creating a picture, like using pieces of tile in different colors to um, create shapes. They Sometimes they're geometric, sometimes they're more organic compositions, and then it's set with some sort of plaster medium. We actually had a beautiful reproduction of that particular one I described made to be in the show so people can kind of get a feel for what they look like. That's awesome. Yeah. What was the line? How do you say it in ancient... Oh, I don't know how it's pronounced, but cave conum. So C- C-A-V-E, and then the second word is C-A-N-E-M. Yeah. I love that. That was kind of my favorite part, the, the very beginning yeah. there, because I love, yeah, I love the timelessness in these things. And then um, it seemed as though from 
um, ancient times, it starts getting really into a lot of the dog collars with like spikes on it. And so that's fascinating because again, I didn't grow up with a dog. I never really thought about dogs. So from my point of view, growing up in the suburbs, you know, going to metal shows and all this kind of stuff, the only people that wear spiked collars are like the goth and punk girls. So wait a second, this has its history and origin in dog collars. And so I would love to hear about it. Like now I I understand why they had spiked collars, but let's hear you say Let's hear it a little bit. I mean, the, there are a couple different uses, but the one that was sort of the most prominent and was to protect, it actually protected the dog, right? So you have the a leather collar or an iron collar or another metal that has these spikes that are facing out. And so, you know, the more um, aggressive the, um, the combatant might be, it could be a lion, it could be a bear, it could be any number, a wolf, it could be another dog, is, you know, the that is the um, the point to be protected. It's you know in an in an attack. That's where the vulnerability is, and where the strike is going to happen is at the neck. So the idea is the collar is um, you know a, a protective measure when those um, spikes are facing out. And interestingly, we did not include. We do have an examples of spikes facing in too. Um, more gruesome idea there, and it's a pretty you know aggressive form of training, right? So if the spikes are facing into the neck and you put pressure on that collar, it is a puncture um, kind of point. Uh, So that was another reason for the spike. But um, most prominently, the idea of protection of the dog and in utilitarian ideas. And I mentioned, you know, this, you know, you see this evolution to the collar is jewelry. Mm. So the, the, the spikes were sharp originally, Function. right? It's like a, almost a shield Yep. before we're getting into like design and beauty. Right. And so we see like over the course, especially in the Victorian era where there's this broad variety of collars, you know, with the industrial revolution and this fascination with, um, with dogs and pet ownership expanding quite a bit during the, the, the era, you also see this response of this wide variety of collars that are, again, for the different uses and looking at pet ownership in particular as a completely new idea and as an extension of, you know, your owner and they're wearing jewelry that's representative of you. And so those spikes then become, they're decorative. So you can literally see sort of as time moves on, they go from being these sharp pointy things that get a little shorter, they get rounded, and then they just become sort of these embellishments that we like think of. Like a stud, mm-hmm. from spike to stud. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Um, and actually, when you're talking about the spike going on the other side for the training, they actually still have something like that. Not nearly as brutal, I'm sure. But yeah, I know someone who's who's a former military dog trainer. So like bomb dogs mm-hmm. and like super high level um, dog training. They have one, it's not a spike, but it is a chain and it just has, um, you know, part of it kind of has little prongs that go the other direction. Mm-hmm. It's like a pop collar. Yep. And it's same deal work with super high level working dogs, but I'm sure a lot kinder than the, the old versions, but it's fascinating. These things don't change all that much. I'm, I'm mm-hmm. almost curious why, cause I know a lot of people that do the bear hunting in Appalachia with dogs. I have, I know a lot of people that do, um, hunting for, you know, wild boars, which are supposed to be even more dangerous than mm-hmm. bears. Um, they do it with dogs. Um, down in Texas and stuff like that. I'm almost curious why these guys don't still use the collars with the spikes because it is not 
a complete oddity for the bear or the boar to kill their dog sometimes. Right. It is fascinating. I mean, the, um, and the, the ones that have the spikes in particular, the early ones, they use nails. So like the idea mm. of the, the production of those, the, it's a leather collar and you use whatever nails you had, um, hand hewn nails were, that were around. We have British and French examples of that from the 17th and 18th century. And the, you know, the idea of the training collar is very normal, right? So it's not, we, we've found more, um, better modes of communication with training collars, but ultimately it is touch sensitivity and pressure that's used with those ideas to communicate with the animal. Just that the, the earliest versions, they just look pretty gnarly because it's nails facing yeah, inward yeah, instead. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And I saw you say in the lecture that the nail size would differ to the length of hair of the dog. It so can. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it definitely. Yeah. And it also... You know, the ones that are also what you had laying around, you know, whatever you had access to from the, you know, local metal smith or, you know, a blacksmith. I mean, even today with me and other people I know who do the dog hunting, we use electronic collars that Mm -hmm. has the ability to do, you know, a shock from the lightest, gentlest thing in the world to a pretty heavy Mm -hmm. duty if the dog goes for a rattlesnake or tries to jump across a road. So it's interesting how the technology changes, but the idea is, Again, I just love this timelessness, how mm-hmm. people are still doing the same things. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. And it's it, to, the neat thing, too, is looking at, like, in, in Britain, um, fox hunting, they really don't use um, training collars. Mm. But in the United States and uh, many packs, just as, like, it just makes sense, right? You want to keep, as you're talking about, I think there's, like, a sort of a, um, a supposition that it's something that's harmful, but really it's a communication yeah. with the animal. And if you're close to a highway when you're hunting, yeah. you know, if there's, it's a, it's a really, in a lot, a lot of ways it's safer for those, um, hounds to have those collars in situations like that. So, yeah. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about some of the, now getting into like the beautiful ones. Cause you know, a yeah. theme that I think about is just how like ugly our, for the most part, our modern world is, you know, mm-hmm. a dog collar. The only thing that pops in my head is, is some piece of crap from Petco made out of nylon, right? (laughs) So the fact that this could be, oh, wait a second. At one point, people were putting velvet collars with silver on the outside with beautiful, ornate, um, you know, things embossed into them or you had one with a date on it. Like, what were some of the really ornate ones that you had in the collection and stuff like that? And, And obviously, it would have been nobles and whatnot who Mm -hmm. had these so one of my favorites in our collection is probably the one that people remember the most because it's huge it's 13 inches in diameter and it stands at three inches tall um it's indian probably going and it is leather and half of it is embellished with three quarter inch cabochons of agate they're bright orangey red so stones. Stone, yes, agate stones, but polished. So mm. um, incredible. And they are in these um, brass um, settings all the way around. So I hope my words are doing it justice. But the other half of it has this amazing metal pierce work that has this in Indian pattern to it. This is from India. Yes. And okay. pro- Goa and probably, yeah. So from Goa. So here's a- Goa, okay. So kind of put that into oh, perspective. Yeah, yeah. Here's a picture of it. It would be hard to describe that. It, it's really hard to describe because it's just so fantastic. It's so over, it's it, anything that you imagine, it's even going to be even more than that, right? Um, but, you know, again, an idea of status, this um, something, this, and it would have been um, designed and made for a Tibetan mastiff. So very ceremonial and these, you know, these gentle giants, they're even bigger than and, you know, when you think of Newfoundlands or St. Bernard's or these really sweet, large, 
impressive animals with these really chunky collars on them. Um, and then looking at, you know, it, as I mentioned, you know, a lot of the really uh, interesting and um, developments happen in Britain with this fascination with all things sporting and dogs becoming such a huge part of that from fox hunting to wing shooting, as I mentioned, you know, and country pursuits that we, you know, we talked about earlier, this generational idea of country life is really the the focal point of everything that we were, were kind of touching on today. And, you know, you, you are, if you're a gentleman in the, you know, in the 17th century and you have property, you have, there's an expectation that you're going to be well-educated. You're going to have an amazing library. Your library is going to include things that include all of the different, um, educational topics like math and science. And, but then also looking at the practical application of owning a farm. And so there are these amazing books that we have that look at encyclopedic approaches to how to be a really educated and successful country gentlemen, which include things like animal husbandry and what kind of crops you might keep and how you take care of your land and what animals thrive in different ways. And um, then using those ideas, that same land is being hunted on and fished on and wing shooting's taking place there too. So there's sort of a broad connection across These are that. books in your library? Mm -hmm. Oh, I uh, love old books like that. Our earliest book dates back to 1523. And is that a manual or what is that? That one's actually, um, interestingly enough, a book on dueling. On dueling. On how dueling. to duel? Yes. It seems a lot of those old books were like how to do stuff. And dueling is like a, is in that time period, you know, my, my colleague Colleen Yarger, who's the curator of library collections, explains it much more eloquently than I do. But the idea that, you know, this is a, this was, litigation. This was the way that you officially solved problems. And so some of these early manuals and books that were printed, they focused on the codification of these ideas that if you're going to challenge somebody to a duel, these are the rules that you're going to play by. And so, yeah, that's kind of how it ended up the in etiquette. ours. Yep. The etiquette. The, the even, and this you know, is 1500s? 1523. Yeah. So what kind of, they had some kind of like primitive muzzle loading pistol then no it would be with a sword with swords and okay, knives and okay, yeah okay. daggers okay yeah yeah so. i guess too early for the shooting duels mm -hmm. okay yes yeah. wow so. that's fascinating yeah i love all those old books i used to live in new york city and they had a yearly um uh, antiquarian book festival mm -hmm. and you just get to walk around and look at these like illuminated texts you know from the 1500s and earlier and just like you know all painted by monks and stuff like that i just love it but i was telling you um i was telling you that recently i did an episode in kentucky at transylvania university and they have a library with a lot of uh, falconry um old herbalism and hunting stuff and a lot of them are those manuals mm -hmm. i just think that the manuals are so fascinating how to do stuff especially now that we're you know 500 years later and again this theme of like the timelessness. Like, um, I bought a book. Um, there was a, I guess it ties back into the leads and stuff, the, and the leashes, but I got this book. It's called, um, illuminated manuscripts of hunting scenes or something, but it, what it is, is excerpts from a, what was he? He was, was he a count? He was something like that. But he was, um, I think he was a count. His name was Gaston Fabus okay. or, or something like that. And he was in the 1300s in France. And he wrote one of these 
illuminated, so beautifully painted, beautifully illustrated manuals on how a nobleman hunts, kind of like what you're saying. Mm -hmm. Like, what what do you do as a gentleman? And uh, it what's amazing is it has all the pictures, but everyone at that period as a noble person was uh, hunting with dogs. Right. So it shows, and then it shows exactly how to do it, whether you're the guy who's doing the scenting first, like the tracking and, or, uh, and you know, this is all on horseback with spears and they're going after bears or they're, uh, with tridents, they're getting river otters. And, um, I just think it's also so neat to see how people have done this through history. So, um, Let's see, we were talking about all the collars. And uh, yeah, there was that beautiful one that had like a date carved, like a date in it. Yeah, we have a lot of, um, you see the sort of the idea of how people perceived the identity of their dog as an extension of them or as a unique individual. You know, we all love our dogs. Which we still do today. Right. And, but the idea of the dog having a name was way less important when we look at some of these early um, dog collars that did have inscriptions on them. So, you know, not surprisingly, if you had a collar that was made of brass or copper, or uh, there's an, a Chinese ally called Pak Tung that was um, one that was um, became a little a more popular. They were just as they are now. They were, you know, they're jewelry, they're expensive commodities. Um, they're things that you don't want to have stolen. Um, and in a lot of ways, the collars had more value than the dogs did. And ultimately, the early 19th century collars, examples that we have, they have inscriptions of the people who owned the dogs and where they lived and not the names of the dogs themselves. Um, it's pretty rare to see a dog's name on a collar inscription of one of these really beautiful examples um, before the 1850s, sort of the rise of that percolates through to the turn of the 20th century. We do have an exception. We have a a collar from 1827. It's inscribed with the name, quote, Monty, unquote. So M-O-N-T-Y. Is the name of the dog. Is the name of the dog, yep. Well, this was even a learning lesson for me getting into hunting dogs um, because I thought you put your dog's name on it. And I quickly learned in the hunting dog culture, again, no, you don't do that. You put your name because it's not about if your dog, you know, you let your dog go ripping off miles away, you know, it, it doesn't matter if your name's dog is, is Monty. Yeah. What matters is, oh, who owns this thing? So I can try to, and because I look at the phone number on the thing and the address. So I found that interesting. So like people who are, you know, real hunters with dogs, they yeah. don't put the dog name on the collar either. So yeah. it's fascinating how there's a history to that too. I mean, ultimately the, the name is a vanity at a certain point, right? Um, and if you're, if you, it's a lost dog, by the time you read the collar, the name's irrelevant because you, you don't know it when you need to call the dog t- to you, right? right. So, um, we, we place value on that and we see that sort of, um, the, it, the, the connection to the individual as an animal and as a pet and as someone who has an identity that maybe we anthropomorphize a little bit, that the connection to the name becomes more prominent over time too. It's pretty cool. And seeing that, um, become evident in the use of the name on the collar more and more over time. And it, just uh, looking through your presentation, it's interesting for me to, you know, I do have a bias where I can easily, you know, I told you I lived in New York City. It's very easy to make fun of like the stupid little chihuahua wearing a, a puffy jacket in a <laughs> stroller. But that too is not new. No. And even in, in the exhibit here, you know, you have like the little, you know, say something like the little poodle on the 
cushion, cushion with its beautiful collar and the pampered little animals. We've been doing that for hundreds of years. Yeah. I mean, one of the really amazing collars that we have in the collection, it was made by Tiffany and Company. It's sterling silver. It's fabulous, right? And the, um, the leather that's used, the quality of Moroccan leather, most of them are Moroccan leather. Um, the liners are just immaculate. We even have Italian and French examples that are very much in line with what was happening in jewelry trends during that, those particular eras as well. So very much ex an extension of what was fashionable with, with women are re represented in those jewelry collars as well from that time period. Wow, so it's almost matching. The similar style mm -hmm. with the human jewelry and the high-end yeah. dog jewelry. Yeah. Fascinating, wow. Yeah, um, and uh, and also this idea that, uh, an idea I've had that people pamper their dogs too much in our modern age, back to that book I told you with the Gaston Fabus in the 1300s, the royal dogs lived in like a palace. <laughs> yeah. There was like a palace kennel mm -hmm. and the guy who took care of the kennels was like, that was your job, would sleep in the kennel. Mm -hmm. He had a room inside of these dog, little dog palaces. Yeah. But they would also like, part of that guy's job in the kennels was massaging the dogs, <laughs> massaging <cool>. their feet. <laughs> this is 1300s. Yeah. Um, feeding them herbs because obviously we, they didn't have modern medicine like we do for whatever, the diseases, rabies or whatever else. Mm -hmm. So they would be making these herbal concoctions to feed to the dogs. And there's paint, illuminated paintings of, of all of these scenes of the taking care of the dogs. It's so cool. Yeah. I mean, in this, that, that level of care really goes and it, it becomes a practical thing. As you said, you know, they were looking at if you're going to keep dogs and hounds and train them and breed them, right. There's, there is a, you know, there's a, it's not just a nice thing to do. It's a practical thing to do that you're going to be focusing on keeping them healthy and training them and having people who are focused on doing that. Well, you know, the, the more elite you are and more focused you are in the sport that you're doing, you're just going to be better at that. And going back to the idea of the books the you know, having those manuals and sharing that information. And as these different sports and ideas become more popular, you know, um, the dissemination of that information through the, through the, the community communities happens through these books and manuals. It was and, the gentleman Google. Mm -hmm. It's a gentleman Google, right? And then the idea of like your library as a reflection of you is these beautiful spaces in your home and you have custom bound books. They're not, you know, what we think of as books today. They, the, all those, um, you know, the earlier versions of this idea, you picked your own leather, you had them bound the way that you wanted them to look. Um, That's right. I forgot right. that. Yeah. So, you, you know, at your library as a, as a physical, um, artistic representation in a lot of ways of like how much you covet your books and how well you take care of them. And yeah. I cool. love that so much. And, and I, I'm totally adverse to audiobooks and stuff like that. Cause <laughs> I want to see a library in my house. Um, yeah, I because I'm the last episode of this, I've gotten kind of into curiosities and mm -hmm. how that too has the historical, the Wunderkammer. Yeah, I think is the way to say. It. Is that German? Yes. Wund, is it Wunderkammer? Mm -hmm. Yes, which is the cabinet of curiosities yep. and how that was the start of museums. Exactly. Yeah. Um, which again would be a kind of like a gentlemanly or noble mm -hmm. person's way of showing off their knowledge, their interests, um, science, art, uh, all that kind of stuff. Exactly. Yeah, that's cool. So cool. Um, what were we talking about the dogs? Okay. Um, how about, so one thing that's very fascinating uh, is, uh, I feel like in our modern era, there are definitely some breeds that are kind of like 
the most popular to modern people, I, I don't know what they would be. I guess probably like Labradors, German Shepherds, uh, maybe Poodles, Chihuahuas. These are kind of the breeds we know today. I feel like the breeds that were in, especially in the exhibit, are kind of not the ones that are so popular today. Like, what were some of those breeds that were like really big throughout history? I mean, they changed, right? We all of those sort of the the um, lap dogs that you're and some of the breeds that you're describing, they're pretty modern in breeding history, right? There were certainly like types of dogs like that. So, you know, you've got the Canaan um, sort of bigger dog types and even the Maltese types are, you know, um, historically some of the, you know, biggest to the smallest sizes. There's this really amazing painting from the Museum of the Dogs collection that was in the exhibition. Um, and it is called the Amsterdam Dog Market. I don't know if you yes. happen to remember that, but it's a really great example of what dog breeds looked like in the Dutch world in the 1600s, right? And um, we recognize some of them as very much in line with what we think of as a breed today, but a lot of them are sort of, you know, these, they're much more, you know, generic looking animals. And talking about the, you know, the American Kennel Club, the idea that we have, we as human beings start to really focus on line breeding these particular dogs to create these breeds that we have. And they're, you know, their new ones are added all the time. The, I, you know, the American Kennel Club, I think they recognize like the 200th or two, something above 200th breed, just this last show that they had in the fall. Um, so the paintings and artwork, um, you know, are great visual history of that evolution and how we affected the breeding of, you know, especially, you know, obviously our focus here at NSLM is the sport animals. So sport, sporting dogs and, and hounds and how they've evolved and have stayed the same over time. Um, but you know, that's the, that's that neat connection to, you know, I, I look at like, so like the, um, the setter is a really good example of this, you know, in 1800, when if there was a, there were one of these particular books that we're talking about was like a, I, I, there were a couple different versions of it, but, um, and different parts of it that were reprinted in different titles, but it was essentially a cataloging of the different types of dogs that were sort of in the, in the known world and what their uses were from utilitarian to sport dogs. And so in 1801, um, the iconic representation of a setter was an all white setter dog. And today, an all-white setter dog doesn't exist anymore. Like, mm. you're not going to find one anymore. And even in that short window, we've already affected a pretty significant change in the way that they look by the breeding that we've done. Fascinating. Fascinating. And that painting is awesome. It is. It, is there, so that is, is that in the 1700s? Or did you say? Yeah, si so this is um, circa 1671, so 72. So what? I mean, even the idea of a dog market, I mean, what would a dog market have been like? Do you know anything more than just the painting? Well, there, the there's like a, there's like a, there's like a, um, there's like a very, uh, sophisticated woman in beautiful mm -hmm. attire. And she's over like a crate with like a little dog, like a little wooden cage yeah. <laughs> with a little, a little frou-frou dog in there. And then you have just kind of like a whole horde of what seem to be hounds and other breeds just down below. Yeah. I mean, this painting is not, was not a capturing reality. It's okay. like, it's following this sort of classic form. You've got these, um, you know, the classic classical buildings in the background. Um, so it's really, it's a, it's a visual story that's kind of encapsulating the idea of 
dog availability in in the um, in the world in their in their world at the time. And so you have the the painting is in a classic structure where you have what is essentially like a stage, right? So you've got that um, where um, the main characters are sort of propped up as you've described. And on the left, you have the lady who is getting her lap dog. And on the right, you have the sportsman who is has a greyhound and is looking for a mate for his greyhound. Mm. And then in the foreground there, um, you know, this amazing variety of, you know, there are over 30 breeds that are sort of breed types that are represented here. And we use the word breed type loosely there. As I said, like the idea of what we think of as breed standards, that's a codification that happens with organizations like the American Kennel Club way after this painting was made. Um, I also particularly love this example. So like for the exhibition, we really only included artwork that showed animals and collars. So in that way, it was the first one of its kind. Um, there was a really beautiful show that was done by the Musée de Chasse, but a lot of their artwork, not a lot, but much of the artwork did not have collars in it, but was also on the connection that um, dogs had with. Is that in France? Uh, yes. Musée de Chasse. That de means Chasse. the Museum of Hunting. Yes. Museum de Chasse. Yeah. So, um, but this one has the Amsterdam dog market painting has this amazing um, uh, realistic representation of the collars that were in use at the time. And we see immediate correlations to the physical artifacts that we have in the exhibition and in the collection. You know, and it, Dr. Grennan spent a lot of um, time, folk as a medical doctor, he was an inveterate cataloger himself. And so he really focused on finding really great examples and a wonderful diversity of them and the quality. And so his, you know, he, he treated the growth of the collection just like he, if he were, you know, doing a residency for his doctor. Um, but so we have this incredible variety of, as I mentioned, the collars that represent everything from these elaborate, beautiful things to the um, really, you know, again, the homegrown ones that a hunter would have would would have done or represented. Um, on training collars are in there as well. So I don't know if I mentioned that, but they mm. we talked about them. But we do have a couple of training collar examples in there too. We even have um, some. Uh, there was a time period when dogs were used to pull small carts still. So yes. love that. Yeah, and so there's a painting from the Museum of the Dogs collection that's in there, and we have an example of a, a cart collar in the show. What is too. it pulling? Um, a, a cart with little kids in it. Ah, yes. You know, um, I did an episode with my buddy who is a coal miner in West Virginia, and his in his grandfather's time, they would have coal mines that were so small and so dangerous. They'd call them dog holes, <sighs> and a dog on a cart would be pulling the coal out. Oh. This is like early 1900s, brutal. Yeah, really and brutal. Yeah. So, but I do think, uh, you know, how humans have the working animals just mm -hmm. absolutely fascinating thing throughout history. Um, I found online a beautiful, um, what must be a print uh, in Belgium of someone um, going around with a, it looks enormous. It looks almost like the Newfoundland, Newfoundland mm -hmm. type dog uh, pulling a cart of milk. It's a milk cart pulled by this giant wow. dog. Wow. So I think that's so neat. That is so neat. So, yeah, oh yeah, you said so it was, it was pulling children on in the, uh, on the one in the exhibit. Yep. Yeah, and we didn't touch about on war yet. I mean, that's the other oh, sort yeah, of. Oh yeah, I would know. love to hear anything like that. I mean, because that is just like to feel like today. That's just out of our. That's not even in our minds. Right. That dogs were used in war. I'm thinking. You know, you see movies, you see horses in war all the time, mm -hmm. but dogs. Like, wow, really? I think, um, I think iconically, the Bayou Tapestry 
shows this um, in it. Even the second scene has a pretty detailed um, inclusion of mastiff, like larger type dogs with collars um, in 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 the scene. Uh, and then one of the physical examples that are in the ex- exhibition, fascinating. Um, you know, the dog is a messenger in World War One, World War Two. They had messenger collars. And so the the World War One collar that we have in our collection um, is a metal. It's a two piece tube so that slips into itself and closes and has a leather collar that closes around. You know, think of a German Shepherd, and they would jump the trenches. It had a little bell on it, and they would jump the trenches and bring messages back and forth um, on their neck. Oh my gosh! Yeah, and I imagine the opposite side would be trying to shoot the dog. Exactly. Yep. That yep. is nuts. And then um, there is a really beautiful sculpture by a contemporary artist called Susan Bahari that is called Always Faithful, and it's of a Doberman. And the Doberman, basically um, paying homage to the Dobermans that served in World War II as military dogs. What did they do? I don't uh, know about, also anything about me- this. You know, um, Messenger is one of them again. So the, the World War II versions had um, leather, um, okay. leather finishings on them. Yep. Okay. It's a huge contingent. Yeah, I'm hoping to do a podcast with my friend, Arielle. She, um, this is who I was talking about, who does a super high-level dog training, but mm-hmm. she was was serving, I'm not sure where, but overseas, I don't know if it was Afghanistan or Iraq or whatever, but she was there with um, military dogs, like body recovery. I don't know if she got into the bomb stuff, but you know, training yeah. drug dogs to find drugs. So that stuff is fascinating that, that we're still using dogs at that level. Absolutely. And they're Belgian Malinois for the most part. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And even looking at, you know, basic things like t- the TSA, right? Looking for for drug sniffing. They're mm-hmm. definitely, yep. Um, I think I read somewhere, I don't know if this is true, but I think in Roman times, and this is totally brutal, but I think they would have um, certain large dogs run towards the opponent with like cauldrons of burning oil or something. I don't know if that's true. But it's brutal. <laughs> it's yeah. brutal how we've used animals and the, the natural world in, in many ways. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, yeah, and I have a cousin who uh, recently got the Cane Corso, mm-hmm. and that I think is an ancient Roman guard dog. Yep. And they are brut- those look intense. Yeah. Those are pretty spooky dogs. Yeah. Oh yeah. But they're also, I mean, they're really smart. Mm. and really loyal. So, you know, there's a huge contingent of paintings and artwork we talk about with the Mastiff breeds. I mean, you know, Mastiffs were kept by gamekeepers as hunters of poachers. Tell, talk about that, because yeah. I love that painting, the yeah. bang of the poacher. Oh, so good. It's one of, uh, it's such a good painting. So it's by Richard Anstell, and um, he was a Victorian-era painter, and he loved doing these sort of conversation pieces, and this one was in the Royal, um, featured in the Royal Academy. And it's huge. It's, you know, it's, it's like it's 110 inches long, somewhere around there. And it's really dramatic. And it's one of those paintings that like you kind of stop in front of it and you're like, what am I looking at? Because it's really intense and there's a lot of lot of energy to it. So there's this mastiff that's in the center of it and he's like, he's in full attack mode. And there's this man with these great Victorian like sideburns and he's got a jacket on and he's like on his back and he's holding... He's clutching the collar of this mastiff that's snarling. 
and his other hand is balled in a fist. And so, and he's fallen back and this mastiff is there. And then there's another um, dog that's um, on the left part of the composition that's sort of trying to engage with this mastiff. And it's the, um, Richard Ansel gives us the um, information from the title. It's, as you said, the Poacher Bay. So we know that this is a man who has gone illegally onto private property and poached the game that's um, displayed in the front of this painting. So there's some pheasant there and a hare and some other um, game birds. And so um, the Mastiff's job and role in training was to basically track down and uh, detain poachers on, on these lands. And so that's sort of the the framing of this really intense composition. It's pretty cool. I love that one. And again, this is something still happening today because I've listened to people who uh, work in the the anti-poaching in Africa mm-hmm. on the on the in the parks and whatnot. Yeah. And they'll use dogs. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um wow. I mean I don't I mean it would be really scary to have a dog coming after you. <laughs> a big oh, dog yeah. like that. I mean, yeah actually happened to my son. We had a, uh, and, and I, I always hate telling the story because pit bulls get a bad name, but it happened to be a pit bull. Um, and it was really wild because, you know, she was a really sweet, um, neighbor and uh, dog that we knew and something set her off. And she tried to run down my son when he was like seven years old, my older son. Yeah. Ooh. So yeah, I don't, I, it was scary. I don't recommend it. <laughs> my Did, son is traumatized to this day. <laughs> I believe it. Yeah. I believe it. Maybe I've, the last episode, two episodes ago, was about reincarnation. So maybe your son was a poacher in a past life. Oh, <laughs> there you go. That was his comeuppance right there. <laughs> well, he didn't get hurt, did he? He did not. We okay, were there. Great. We were, thankfully, we were able to, yeah, and my um, husband was able to intervene. And yeah, it was really scary. It was crazy because it was really like a switch and she was so outside of her normal temperament. Mm. So unfortunately, it did happen. Well, I'm glad he didn't actually get bit because yes. I've known some people who actually got attacked by dogs and that's horrific. It is, yeah. There was a girl in my high school whose face got totally ripped up by a dog at a party and she had to get like oh. facial reconstruction type thing. It's horrific. Terrifying. Yeah, dogs are, can be very scary. Yeah. Um, let's see, what were some, are there any other, maybe before switching to other things at the museum and other exhibits, is there anything else in the dog collar uh, any of the other paintings that you found exceptionally interesting or a good backstory about or anything? Oh, let's see. Um, that's another one. That's good. The lion hunt is pretty amazing. Right. So that, and I like, there are a whole bunch. I don't know if there's another one too. So yeah, I don't know if there was, it's the, the, there's a bunch of like historical paintings. I don't know if it's the Dutch with the, just like the horde of hounds and like a, a great ferocious beast, like a bear or like uh, a lion. Yeah, yeah. I love those paintings. So the lion hunt is it wasn't really I'm mean, just from size alone is just one that really is impressive. It's 95 inches long and it has this what is essentially a caricature of a lion, right? So you have this Dutch artist, um, Dutch school. Um, of, um, it's attributed to Paul de Vos, who was a um, 17th century um, painter. And he may have seen a lion in a zoological setting, probably not based on what he painted, right? Because it looks like- Very cartoon yeah, face. And very much like, you know, something you might see on on China, right? Like the sort oh. of an, that Asian influence of the- Yeah, the oriental, mm-hmm. the old oriental porcelain yeah. and stuff like that. Yep. Interesting. And where the, the dogs that are in this hunt with the lion, they're much more accurately painted. And that collar with the um, spikes facing out that we talked about before- um, so that's a, you know, great 1600s example. Um, 
probably I did have a thought for another one that is so the one another one that's my favorite is the the one that is a really great copy of an um, Edwin Landseer painting that's in um, in a London museum. But there's a really beautiful version of it um, in the show that's in the American Kennel Club's um, collection. It's called Alexander and Diogenes. And so um, it's an anthropomorphization of these dogs depicting this this narrative of um, when Alexander the Great meets Diogenes, the first cynic philosopher, if you're familiar with that particular um, um, uh, philosopher who was recorded by Plutarch. So famously, Diogenes as the the one who came up with the concept of cynicism as a philosophical model, you know, he really um, questioned a lot of ideas of um, human behavior. And he um, was quite a character and he hung out in the Athenian marketplace a lot and engaged people in conversation about sort of his philosophical ideas. And he was known to have apparently like walked around the market square in the middle of the day with a lantern and kind of walking up to people and saying, I'm looking for an honest man kind of stuff. And he famously took up residence in a pithos, which is a marketplace-sized vessel to usually large quantities of things like oil or fruit or whatever. And he literally lived in this. So an ancient version of a barrel. Yes. And and he's so he's living in this in this barrel in the marketplace and and um, kind of hanging out there. So uh, Alexander the Great um, uh, wanted to meet him. And so he and his um, entourage they go to the market square and apparently the interaction was quite divisive between the two so um apparently alexander the great asked diogenes you know so you know diogenes what do you want and diogenes uh, diogenes answers would you please get out of my light like just you know kind of get out of my way and so this painting is capturing that moment where you have this um this mongrelly type dog that's in this pithos here in the corner looking quite scruffy and you've got this flirty little Charles King Charles spaniel there that's kind of flirting with the dog on the side the entourage there and the bloodhounds who are like in a very sentry like um um, position and then the centerpiece here being Diogenes, who's very affronted, and he has this, um, you know, this white dog with this really amazing silver collar, and it's got this huge chunky lock on it, and he looks really affronted. as kind of the whole, the whole narrative and that's, that's being. That's picked Alexander in. the Great, the that, big white, the dog. the big white dog in the middle looking there, yeah. regal. Yes, looking. talking to this guy who's who's almost like a street urchin guy mm-hmm. living in this pot. Yep. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I vaguely heard about that story before. I mean, he sounds a little bit like a jerk. He's going around <laughs> telling everyone they're a liar, and then being a dickhead to the—I don't—I don't know if he was to the emperor or whatever. Um, so all of our all of our modern cynicism comes from this guy. Yes. Mm. Yep. Um, and uh, let's see, let's see. I guess well, you did. I guess should we transition out of? The dog collars? Uh, we can. I just also wanted to just quickly, for obvious reasons, thank our our donors yes, for yes. supporting the exhibition. Yes. So um, Dr. Timothy and Jocelyn Grinnan, um, Garth Grinnan Galleries, and Mark um, Anstein and uh, Laura um, Lancaster were incredibly generous in supporting this show. And we're, you know, as I mentioned, if you're interested Still, in seeing it, yeah. New York City until September and um, in Thomasville, Georgia between November and March. 
So now you brought up something that I thought could be an interesting topic, which is um, so the rest of the museum has lots and lots of paintings of horses throughout different time periods. Um, one thing I think is really interesting that someone who might be listening to this podcast, who's not an artist, not, uh, would be that they would never think about is like, how do artists throughout history find their reference material? Mm -hmm. So you talked about how that lion in this very beautiful, very masterly Dutch painting, um, was it 1600, 1700s, 1600s, yeah. 1600s that the lion looks very cartoon mm -hmm. and kind of silly almost. Um, be, and because the artist really didn't have any reference material, like right. now modern artists like myself as an illustrator, if I want to do a painting, I go on Google and see what the hell things look like. Yep. Or I take a picture of somebody for the form of a body, but I'm mainly looking at pictures. Yep. I take a picture of a plant and I illustrate from that. It's interesting. How did artists do this, you know, through the centuries in art history, um, and so one thing I, I wanted to bring up that see if, if anything rings a bell or anything in your guys' collection is similar, and it's a little macabre, but I find it fascinating, is uh, there's a famous um, equestrian painter, George Stubb. Mm -hmm. George and, Stubbs, yeah. And he did these like absolutely scientific looking, um, and this is 1700s, uh, English painter, scientific um, renditions of mm -hmm. what, horse anatomy looked like. Mm -hmm. Well, how do you learn all that? Well, this guy was taking, I guess, dead horses and, um, him and I, I don't know if it was his wife or his assistant or lover or what she was, but they would basically string up on hooks, these horses in poses in a barn in some farmhouse for months on end and would put them in different forms, would skin them, remove the muscles and, um, you know, do these incredible illustrations of the horse anatomy. And then he became very famous for being the best guy at painting the most, uh, lifelike horses. Mm -hmm. That's all incredibly fascinating. So, um, you know, and, and that's not all, all that abnormal. Many artists throughout history were pulling up cadavers to see what does a human look like? Yeah. Um, so is there anything, does that ring any bells for things in our history about how did these artists get their reference material? You know, you guys have so many images of hunting dogs. You know, it's one thing throughout history, you have artists who have, you know, a woman or, a, um, you know, a very rich man or a prostitute pose for them for hours on end, mm -hmm. but try to get an animal to do that. Yeah. So it's, the fact that these guys could paint these incredible images of dogs before photography, how that, you know, is there anything... I mean, it's from life. And, you know, George Stubbs, heck yeah, I wish we had a painting by him um, in our collection. We have the anatomy of the horse, the um, the illustration, the um, engravings of the um, work that you're talking about. I mean, as an artist who was working in the age of reason, he was equal part scientist and artist and had right. the, the luxury and the following to be able to do that. And it was actually a studio. He carried those horses on his back up a staircase to his studio. The man well, how was do you a carry a horse? On his back. Like by... Bits Literally, and like no, was like the whole up? carcass on his back. What? He lugged them up the stairs. Yeah, it was crazy. He's possessed by his mission. Yeah, I and, love it. And you know, the the it, that was a modernization of an earlier um, approach of that by Ruini, and we have a um, Ruini's um, um, book in our collection too from the 1600s. I mean, definitely from life. You know, I mean, it, as as you pointed out, you know, if you pho photography obviously revolutionized the way that 
Now, there, I can go down a really deep rabbit hole just on talking about Edward Moybridge alone, who really is the the focal point of how we understand locomotion from of human beings and all types of animals as a result of his photographic studies that he did in the 1870s and 80s. And, and they had all started from a bet, actually. So little sidebar here. This is a cool story. So Edward Moybridge... Um, he was a seasoned photographer, very well known. So we're looking at, you know, 1871, I believe is the date. Um, and um, Leland Stanford, so Stanford University, Leland Stanford was this, you know, he was an entrepreneur and he was wealthy. And uh, supposedly he had a bet as to whether or not all four hooves of the horse were off the ground at the trot, at the gallop in the trot. And supposedly the bet was for $20,000. Back then. Back then. Huge amount of cash. So he um, invited Moybridge to do this experiment, which ultimately in this era is an experiment because stop motion photography requires a shutter to clap down and open in one five hundredth of a second which is incredibly fast when you think of the mechanical process that's involved in that. And they're still using those, you know, think of like when you go to do an old-timey photograph, they are still using these um, these box cameras mm-hmm. that require wet emulsion film. They, you know, they need a dark room to develop them. And, you know, the idea of a reliable shutter or a film that was fast enough to do this stuff really didn't exist yet. So Moybridge accepted the challenge and um, did this first famous... Um, series where he started with nine of these cameras uh, lined up in a row and um, yards and yards and yards of white sheeting draped across the uh, this racetrack and up as a backdrop and had a carriage driver um, a carriage and a horse drive down this um, setup that he created and it was a manual shutter release so he worked with engineers to create a shutter that would release quickly open and close he worked on the emulsion speeds of the film and then had a tripwire literally running from this these cameras across this white sheeting. And this horse would hit that tripwire, that first camera would go, hit the next tripwire, that camera would go down the entire line. And then um, Moybridge had invited, they had invited um, journalists to come and witness this. And so he famously goes into his um, his little uh, pop up dark room and Eureka, there it is. It's the first you know very blurry photograph that shows all four hooves of the horse off the ground. Sadly, that image was lost, and because there was no way to really reliably really reproduce it, there was still a lot of skepticism surrounding this. So um, Stanford ends up commissioning um, and. Um, helping and supporting the idea of Moybridge turning around and doing thousands of photographs. Everything from, you know, people dancing to sweeping the floor to, um, and then taking more and more challenging approaches to capturing animals, um, you know, ones that on the ground and then also in flight using electromagnetic switches as the later versions of the camera setups that he had. And so those suite of photographs, being able to see the, the, different aspects of motion that we physically may observe on some level, but to be able to capture and reproduce them, they really revolutionized the way that people started painting motion in the 20th century, right? And we see that a lot in horse racing paintings, lots of equestrian subject matter, historically looking at what people approximate as motion. And you mentioned George Stubbs. He really set the aesthetic of a horse race or a horse at the gallop 
um, which was an incorrect idea. We call it the hobby horse or the um, um, the leaping horse, whichever name we know of it. But it's that idea of the animals with their fours stretched out and their hinds stretched out really far, right? And they don't have that sort of the flexibility in the legs that we anticipate now. And Stubbs actually created, there's a really, um, it's a it's a really small work that's in the Yale Center for British Arts collection. It's in the Paul Mellon collection. It's a, a Conte um, crayon drawing that Stubbs did that is a side view of a horse showing this improper gait with a f- like the flank um, removed and exposed as kind of an anatomical feature. And so fusing the idea of all of this intense work that he did, which essentially he then ended up getting wrong and looking at sort of the proliferation of this idea through artwork. And it, you know, it was stubborn. It stayed in the aesthetic preference well after the Moybridge photographs, um, were available and readily available. We see a whole generation of artists that then start to embrace it. But, you know, ultimately before that, you you saw it or you dissected it or you imagined it or you copied other people's artwork, right? I didn't even, because I know, I told you earlier, I know very little about horses. I've only ridden them a few times. My grandfather had horses in Belgium, but before I was born. So I don't know very much about horses, but that is so fascinating. So the artistic representation of horses has been really wrong for a long period until Mm -hmm. you had this technological revolution with, with with that photographer. Yep. That's incredible. And I do know those photos because in in I went to film school. They showed us that because it's like the like yeah. the you know stop motion mm-hmm. or slow slow motion. It's showing the different frames. Well, he famously also created the zoetrope. So like some of the first filming technologies that like when you look at the first iterations of that, when he was doing his lectures about his books, he had created what was essentially a, a film a film approach to it, and so was yeah instrumental in some of those early ideas too. Yeah. That is amazing. That is amazing. Interesting how technology revolutionizes art. Mm-hmm. You know, certainly with like all the etchings and prints that I like, I guess that would have been, I guess they were doing wood blocks first. Right. I mean, the mechanical ideas of, you know, engraving and, and yeah, etching, right? Exactly. And you needed wood, the machines. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, looking at then photolithographic processes that start to develop where then it's a it's a photographic reproduction kind of approach to the printmaking process, too. Yep. Yeah. And then it's really kind of recent in the whole idea of like it's it's place in art history, but so incredibly influential and important in, in that idea. Very much so. And then taking it a step further, that photography then becomes an art form pretty quickly too. Right. right? In and of itself, not just as a technical thing, but also as an artistic expression. Right. And that's a good transition because, uh, again, we are so inundated with the image in Mm -hmm. the modern times. But in one of your little lectures, um, in one of your little videos online, you said, here's a painting of a fish. Like, why the hell would anyone want a painting of a fish? Well, back in the day, and someone caught a beautiful fish, you don't have your cell phone to show your friends. <laughs> you, you know, taxidermy was probably at different levels of being pretty primitive. Or So talk about that. Like, yeah, a lot of this old hunting art is kind of your trophy after the hunt, right? Yeah, I mean, the still ice that you're talking about, like, you know, the, on the riverbank or if you go into sort of the 18, later 1800s in the Trompe movement, Fool the Eye, where there are these academic exercises where you're really showing off your technical ability and you're trying to create create a composition that's so true to life as to be 
when you go to the trompe l'oeil, it literally means we're trying to trick you into thinking you're seeing real. something real, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so, yeah, we have this really beautiful um, painting. We have two actually by a Scottish artist called John Bucknell Russell, who specialized in fish still life paintings of fish on riverbanks. And he painted every single scale in this in sort of this beautiful, uh, reflective and luminescent quality about it. And, you know, the idea of the, the fish looking like that, it's a very short window just in the reality of it. Uh, so, yeah, these were these um, two-dimensional trophies ultimately. That and, and So would some nobleman or gentleman have caught something and brought it to him and said, paint that? Probably. Like yeah. a or modern text As an artist he, in his specialization, he may have even caught it himself, right? right? I mean, the best sporting artists really at the end of the day, they need to competently understand the sport from the inside out. They need to be able to paint animals. They need to be able to paint people and they need to be able to paint landscapes. And if any one of those things isn't believable, they're going to fail. And so like the idea of knowing that sport from the inside out, knowing those animals from the inside out, literally, and, you know, metaphorically speaking, becomes pretty critical because people who do these sports and have these animals and keep this life and hold it dear, they're really critical. Of, they're going to know if you're a phony. Heck yeah. Right. And they're going to see it if they don't, you know, if you have the, you know, if the, especially in sporting art, there's this real connection to the natural and realistic approach to the compositions. And so much so that, you know, you have a strong contingent of um, animal and sporting art collectors who don't particularly jive with contemporary art because it doesn't check those boxes of realism anymore. And so it's kind of an interesting divergence in some way. And like when we look at like I've always hated the phrase sporting art. I'm not a really big fan of it because it kind of makes a niche genre that's a side or on the side of art historical um, um, ideas. But really it's the subject matter that's portrayed within the context of that art historical time period. And we see those influences along the way. And so, you know, some people jive more with the, the realistic um, compositions and others tend to like the more modern things. Mm -hmm. So it's a, it, and it's a thriving subject matter. There are tons of contemporary artists today who paint representationally or mm. in more, you know, fusion styles or, you know, modern, postmodern kind of styles too. So. Yeah. My personal opinion is like, uh, the blend is nice mm -hmm. because, you know, we don't need the perfect representation. We have cameras now. We don't need hyper realism. Yeah. So it's interesting to see representation, to see the form, the yeah. figure, but then also to see, you know, beautiful color, beautiful brushstrokes. That is all adds a lot, but back, what, back to the fish and what you're saying about, uh, painting from life and whatnot, it's, it's also like, you know, again, we're so used to photos like that, you know, for the artist, your reference material, a dead fish, like what, you got like one day yeah. to like nail in kind Unless of the form sort of freezer. Yeah, yeah <laughs> exactly. And I mean, and that guy, George Stubbs with the horses, I mean, supposedly that, that whole area stunk because the horse is rotting for like months as he has got this thing on hooks, Yep. you know? So, and, and I've tried to draw from like picked flowers and whatnot. I mean, you pick a flower and it's wilted and droopy within an hour. That's true. Yeah. So it, it's just fascinating how, uh, you know, just, or, or these artists who would do, you know, like I did a whole episode on the Hudson River Valley painters, you know, they're painting these almost, um, divine sunsets. Well, like, how are you locking that in? Mm -hmm. You know, they were, I think they were doing like watercolor studies and yeah. then they'd go back to their studio to lock it in. But still, it's like, you know, what 
Your reference material is fading with every second. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think I kind of covered a lot of the topics I wanted to cover. Um, is there anything else that you think you might want to? I did ask in an email if you had any story, that, but we don't have to do that. We can stick to the museum. Um, I don't, I didn't have a personal one. Yeah. Like the Pompeii one just kind of jumped into my head as yes. we were talking. But the other one that was really a neat one is the story of Barry, the St. Bernard. We have a barrel collar in our collection. So think of the wooden cask. Think of like the iconic St. Bernard in the Swiss Alps and, you know, this rescue dog that famously had, um, you know, liquor or spirits in this vessel and they would help, you know, these weary travelers who were hypothermic and they would, you know, they would be able to partake in this, you know, um, the, the, the uh, alcohol of some sort. Um, our barrel flask is undated. And historically, that's kind of a myth, but Barry did exist as a rescue dog. So the St. Bernard Monastery in Switzerland and the Swiss Alps, they were one of the sort of vanguards of this model that goes back to the Middle Ages where, you know, this this very treacherous pass that people historically needed to use over the course of the year nine months of that year incredibly dangerous um, with snow and possible avalanches and you know weary travelers were supported by um, these monasteries as they're calling it was their mission the 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 hostel itself um, they had I think it was 40 I want to say 40 rooms that like if you were overnight caught on the on the past they you were welcomed to stay there they automatically when they encounter people at the hospice they would give them wine cheese and bread right in the door and it was really i mean this was they were known as like the most hospitable like group of people that a lot of these um travelers encountered in their lives the saint bernard as we think of it today they didn't really look like that yet so that was one that very specifically has been strongly changed through um the show dog world but there were different short coat and long coat type of um, dogs that were kept. They were supposedly also trained with different barks so they could would call, you know, and they'd try and encourage the people who were tired to follow them. If they weren't able to, one of them would stay, maybe go and get a monk and bring them back. They usually were out in pairs. The one named Barry, um, he supposedly, there's a really great Victorian story about him um, that he saved as many as 40 travelers from from being lost or, or dying out in, a, in the snowy tundra and that he was obsessed with helping people and travelers and that he would, when a storm came supposedly in these uh, great um, discussions that he would like, just he couldn't be contained indoors. They had to let him out because he was just so driven to go and help help these lost souls. And so part of the Barry lore that actually is really kind of fascinating is that the legend is that Barry saved a child, like a, a, I think it was like a five-year-old-ish type um, age um, boy, and carried this child on his back into the monastery. Whether or not it's true, but that's one of the parts of the story that's um, shared as the, as the legend of Barry. 
And so after he died, um, the Byrne Zoological Facility, which becomes the Byrne Museum today, they taxidermied Barry. And um, interestingly enough, it wasn't authentic enough for the later museum um, or zoological professionals there because they re-taxidermied him and changed the shape of his head to conform with the newer standards of the St. Bernard, which breaks my brain and makes me very sad for the historical content loss there. But they started displaying him with a sparrow collar, even though it wasn't actually the type of vessel that would have been historically documented as having been used by these animals to help um, travelers. Uh, we have verbal descriptions of them in German and French and English that do talk about these trained pairs of dogs that were sent out with either monks or by themselves to, you know, meet travelers on, you know, it, just as a, depending on the weather, it could have just been somebody who was tired, right? And maybe one of the dogs would have a blanket. Maybe the other one would have what's described in German as a fleschchen, which is a bottle um, uh, vial is another word that was used in um, English versions of this in their um, late 17, early 1800s and would have some sort of drink in it. But we know that, and the monks would have known that if you were hypothermic and you drank alcohol, that was like the worst thing that you could do and it would basically take your core body temperature that you have left, bring it to the surface and you would probably die. So. The idea of that being the go-to for saving a hypothermic person would not have necessarily been historically supported. I, the, I think the idea of it having being some sort of alcohol, yes, but it wouldn't have been in a barrel flask is the sort of the really big thing there. Um, and they wouldn't have necessarily given someone who was really in trouble that. It does make sense though, when you think about the idea that you know it's winter, right? It's cold. They can't be out with water for very long because it's going to freeze. And it goes back to a painting by Edwin Landseer, that artist that I mentioned before. He created a painting that included um, this sort of, it was a conversation piece around the St. Bernard uh, monks with the uh, two um, St. Bernard types, uh, Mastiff types, excuse me, um, reviving this, this man who um, is hypothermic and he's got like this really horrible gray hand that the dogs are licking and they, one of them has a sparrow flask and that's the imagery that solidified in popular culture and um, in fact Swiss travel still the tra tourist industry very much connects the St. Bernard and the barrel flask to um, their, their um, marketing. Can you imagine being lost in the snow and then just seeing this enormous dog coming for you? It's I mean, so, that is a. It's so romantic. I love it. It is extremely romantic. Um, I absolutely love that. And thank you for telling that whole story. That's really, really neat. Um, yeah, I guess kind of in closing, um, what I what what's kind of interesting with the monks how they would be breeders is I so my family half my family is in Belgium still lives there. Um, so St. Hubert, mm -hmm. who's the, the patron saint of hunting, I've talked about him a lot on the podcast. 
um, this, they were monks in that area that would be breeding what I think what I kind of read around is like the modern day bloodhound is kind of like what they were breeding. And this would have been to hunt boar stag and in the Ardennes in Belgium. So it's just fascinating that these monks would be these, these famous dog breeders. Super, super cool. And our mutual acquaintance, Rita Mae Brown, um, after she did the podcast, she invited us to the opening hunt and on the opening hunt, um, her and the rest of her, her hunt, the club, were all dressed in their formal attire. They looked beautiful. There was a lady doing side saddle and they're on horseback and all the foxhounds are around and they, uh, it was on a beautiful estate with a beautiful old like manor house. And they had invited some, um, preacher or pastor to do the blessing of the hounds, which is this old, um, European, I guess, prayer ritual of, uh, anointing all the dogs to protect them from rabies. And now it's just kind of tradition, but I got to see that, which is so neat. I got to see all this happening. Thanks to Rita Mae Brown. But, uh, yeah, I, I think this is all extremely interesting. Do you have dogs and horse? Do you ride horses? Do you do all this stuff or is it just your intellectual work side? It is a little, I haven't been on a horse since I was really little. And I had the, I did, I took lessons a couple of times not in a big broad sweeping way. Um, Fishing is definitely on my radar. Um, I target shot growing up, and so I have um, taken a few uh, lessons in in um, in shooting, and so clay clay shooting. Nice. Um, uh, so yeah, I mean, it's we are really in our when we look at who works here, like we're a broad mix. Some of you know my colleague Reed and my boss Elizabeth, they do it all. And, and from fox hunting to, you know, even reads a polo player. So, um, and then there are those of us who came, fell in love with it. I started working in a, in an art gallery that specialized in, um, sporting art and was there for 13 years. And just immediately all of the things that I think you see as what attracted you to why you do your podcast is exactly why I am where I am. You know, what almost 30 years later now is I just, connected so deeply with the artwork, the tradition that they represent, and this community of people who have generationally been passionate about keeping this idea alive to the present and how much it resonates with us as human beings to, you know, to have animals. Again, that universal truth of, um, you know, loving the countryside and wanting to keep it for the future and really a community that's so invested in that idea of sustainability of what we do and how we navigate through this challenging ecological world that we are encountering now and the pressing need for, you know, being a, 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 a vocal advocate for keeping these ideas alive. Mm. And Middleburg is such an amazing place that way because it is such a Broad, broad network of people who are like-minded in making sure that, you know, from legislation to ownership that we we keep it as it is. And, you know, there unfortunately, there are a lot of places in the country where it's not possible anymore, you mm. know, just because of, you know, the, the type of encroachment that's happening. So. Right on. Well, thank you so much for doing this. And do you want to say in closing anything about the museum, any future exhibits? I see yeah. you have a wildlife, you have one that's more. So most of this is very, most of the things in the collection are very rural and very, um, you know, sporting. It's mm -hmm. not as much like wild nature. Like this is not really the art of like the frontier hunters and trappers. This is the much more gentlemanly 
upper class, the very um, the high etiquette of the of the beautiful attire, the racehorses. That's more of the genre here. But you do have this exhibit coming up, which is a little bit more of the wilderness art. Yeah, I mean, the, ultimately, our art collection doesn't broadly represent our mission yet. Our books cover the sort of the full gamut. I would love to have some more American art from the time period that you were talking about. We just don't have a lot of that yet, and it's definitely a collecting gap that we want to work on. Um, but we have an amazing opportunity to be um, a host for an exhibition that's being developed by the National Museum of Wildlife Art. It actually is on view there right now. They opened in May. And it's called Survival of the Fittest, Envisioning Wildlife and Wilderness with the Big Four Masterworks from the Rijksmuseum Twenth and the National Museum of Wildlife Art. And it's curated by um, one of their long-term, long-time curators. He is now um, working on the catalog resume of Carl Rungius, who's one of the artists that's mm. represented as the big four. Uh, it looks at um, Carl Rungius, Wilm Kunert, um, Carl Fries, and um, Bruno Lillifors. And these were European and European-American artists who iconically created unique imagery of wild animals in so Lilla Force was Swedish. Um, Rungius also focused on the American landscape. Um, so a really, and then looking at Carl Fries and others who did African animals. And there, um, the, a lot of the paintings are coming from, from the Rijksmuseum collection. And they are beautiful and large. And it's three quarters of our building. So it's a really impressive show for us to have here and a great opportunity to partner with NMWA. They always do such great um, exhibitions. So we're really excited to have it. It opens here. It opens here. And what time period were those artists working in? So they're 19th century. Okay. Yeah. They must have worked from carcasses too, because how the hell would you paint a moose if you get to see it for five seconds on some adventure in the woods? Well, I mean, the um, Carl Rungus in particular, he did these in, in, um, very impressive excursions into these really, I mean, even today, you know, some of these areas are pretty hard to get to and it takes, you know, a couple days of, you know, packing into, um, you know, with pack mules to get to the areas. And he did these excursions into the landscape and painted um, studies on site, what you were talking about before. Mm. And there are artists who are still doing, like Tucker Smith is another artist that we featured here that was an exhibition that they um, produced as well, who's a seasoned um, artist who basically followed sort of the same track that Runkius took out. Before to there were major. wildlife photographers, there were wildlife painters. Exactly, right? I love it. So, um, you know, and this idea of like, where does our mission sit with this? And, you know, animals, obviously, domesticated animals as part of, you know, whether we're talking about dog breeding or if we're talking about the, the country life, animal husbandry, you know, chickens is another kind of example there, you know, the breeding and, and showing of chickens or other animals that are, would be at an animal fair. It's very much part of the rhythm of that. And, you know, the, the reality of hunting and shooting animals is that they, uh, the, the quarry there is wildlife. So we, we come at it from, you know, a more literal perspective, but very much wildlife and animals are part of underpinning of everything that we talk about mm -hmm. at the end of the day. And this divergence of, wildlife art as a separate topic is something that's really, you know, 1970s, the concept of wildlife art is a pretty new uh, name and label for interesting, it. Interesting. Interesting. It would never have been called that. So the show is on, uh, opens with us on September 8th and it runs through January 14th. 
um, in the of 2024. So it's a, about three month run for us, and uh, we're really excited about it. And again, this is another one that I am so honored that we have. Uh, the type of commitment to these topics because we don't have a large exhibition endowment here. This one was underwritten at our venue by Mary and um, Manley Johnson, uh, Jacqueline B. Mars, and Susan and John Mullen. And you know, without their generosity, we wouldn't be able to have it. So we're we're really you know just really thankful for that kind of support. Um, and they all also happen to be board members here. You know, we've been. Our board is just so amazing and focused on, you know, supporting us at all levels, you know, from from the way that we do things here. And we've got such a great opportunity as uh, what we like to say is a hub. You know, we get a lot of tourist traffic through Middleburg and we get the opportunity to introduce people to the core topics we talked about today and get to talk about why it's important for everybody, right? Everything from food sustainability to, you know, the, as you pointed out so aptly, you know, the hunter naturalists are the ones who created the conservation movement in this country. And I think we're a little disconnected from some of those ideas and we get a great, um, a great approach that way here at the NSLM. 